Last Sunday, I started a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. I love the way our children's Sunday school curriculum talks about the Ten Commandments. Our curriculum calls them the Ten Best Ways, the Ten Best Ways to Live, which communicates to me that these are not strictures or constrictions, but rather liberations and freedoms to live the way God intended for us. So today, the story of God's gift to God's people at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19 and 20. Moses brought the people out from the camp to the base of Mount Sinai to meet God, and the people took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had come down upon it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln, while the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses would speak and God would answer Moses in thunder. And when the Lord descended upon the mountain to the top of the mountain, the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people not to break through to the Lord to look, otherwise many will perish. For the Lord might break out against the people. And so Moses went down to tell the people. And then... God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the house of bondage, out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The first and arguably the most important of the Ten Commandments is you shall have no other gods before God. And to instruct us on why the Lord God of Israel deserves our highest allegiance, the Hebrew Bible tells us the story of God's delivery of God's gift to God's people at Mount Sinai. And the Bible gives us such a vivid tableau that's so frightening and spectacular that Filmmakers from Cecil B. DeMille with the Ten Commandments to Steven Spielberg with Raiders of the Lost Ark have been unable to resist its inherently science fiction aspects. Exodus tells us that when God approached the earth to give God's people God's greatest gift, the holy mountain was cloaked with opaque smoke and capped with volcanic fire and staggered with earthquake and deafened by God's voice as if by thunder. Moses warns the Hebrew, don't touch the mountain lest God break out upon you. Break out. That's a vivid verb. A wild animal breaks out of its cage. A criminal breaks out of his jail cell. A virus breaks out in contagion. As if God were a bottled but dangerous radioactivity, you don't want to jostle. Now Moses is a hero to the Muslims as well, of course. And the way the Quran tells the story is that Moses asked God to see God's face. But God thinks that Moses is not ready for this yet. So God shows God's face to a nearby mountain instead, which promptly disintegrates into a pile of smoke and dust and rubble and rock. And Moses falls down on his face senseless, and when he recovers, he says to God, never mind. In both its Jewish and its Muslim incarnations, this is a far-fetched story first shared around campfires in the ancient Arabian desert by 
Bedouins who shepherded their flocks from watering hole to watering hole with coyotes howling in the distance and scorpions skittering across the sand. This material is about 3,000 years old, which means two things. First of all, it means that the Decalogue endures. We've been consulting it for 3,000 years. Every culture, in every land, with every language, in every far corner of the earth, in every age has consulted this as our fundamental legal code. The Decalogue is durable, but it also means that it's ancient. It's old stuff. It's cloaked in ancient superstition and opaque ritual. But if that inherently science fiction story is too much for your incredulous 21st century minds to handle, just remember that even a consistently secular organization like Alcoholics Anonymous tells the same story in drier, more linear language. Step number one, you admit that you are puny before the powers of the universe, including alcohol, and that on your own you have made a mess of your life. Step two, you've seen that only a power beyond the earth and space and time and beyond your puny self is able to rescue you from yourself. Step three, give it up. Surrender. You're too small. And then the ancientness of the Decalogue impresses itself upon us in another way. The first commandment, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Not I am the only God, but I must be the first God. It virtually acknowledges the existence of competitor gods. This commandment does not foreclose on the, on the possibility that other tribes will have their tribal divinities as well. We're a long way here from the modern radical monotheism of modern Judaism or Christianity or Islam. And one Bible scholar says that for Moses and Israel, the, the question was never having no gods, but having the wrong gods. This stuff is old, 3,000 years old, but in a way it anticipates our problem too, right? Because we, we don't have no gods, we have too many gods. We have the wrong gods. It's no accident that this is the first of the Ten Commandments. In a way, the other nine are just commentary on this first commandment. It's often been said that the whole Jewish Christian Bible is just a narrative unfolding of the first commandment. How to get God right. How to keep God first. And then a thousand years later, Jesus sums up the two tables of the, of the law with his terse praise, love God above all and your neighbor as yourself. The vertical and horizontal dimensions of our human ethics, the cross. Love God above all, your neighbor as yourself. And then 400 years after Jesus, Augustine in North Africa comes along and makes it even simpler. Love God and do as you please, he says. Love God and do whatever you want. That's frightening, isn't it? Isn't that a little libertine? A little permissive? Libertarians love this. But you see how the first commandment sums up the other. If you love God, you will never 
use God's name profanely. If you love God, you will never take what is not yours. If you love God, you will never eradicate innocent life. If you love God, you will always honor your parents and your promises, including and especially the marriage vow. You will never speak untruths, and you will never excessively desire your neighbor's plenty. And if you get this right, all the rest falls into place. First things first, that bland, insipid cliche your parents drilled into you. Chores before fun, homework before soccer, grandparents before friends. First things first. For the business world, Stephen Covey put it this way. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And this is hard in business and in our personal lives. Maybe you've heard the story about the man who finally secured a single ticket to Super Bowl 50 in Santa Clara, California. He lived in San Francisco, but he was a Denver native and a lifelong Bronco fan. And when he heard that the Broncos won the AFC championship and were going to be in the Super Bowl and this might be Peyton Manning's last performance, he just had to have a ticket. So he got his wife's permission. He could only afford one ticket. And he went on StubHub and paid a fortune for this ticket. He won't even tell his friends how much he paid for it. But it was on the 50-yard line, and he was happier than the dog of the guy who empties the trash at Outback Steakhouse. And he sits down in his seat at the 50-yard line, halfway up in the stands, and he notices that the seat next to him is empty. And there's a woman of about 70 years old sitting on the other side of the empty seat, and at the end of the first quarter, his curiosity finally gets the best of him, and he says, excuse me, ma'am, is this seat taken? And she says, no, this seat is empty. And he says, that's amazing. Who would have a ticket like this and not use it for the Super Bowl? And she gets all teary-eyed and she says, well, that seat actually belongs to me. I was supposed to come here with my husband, but he passed away. We've been coming here together to every Super Bowl since 1967 when we were married. And the man says, oh, I'm sorry to hear that, but couldn't you get a friend or a relative or even a neighbor to use this seat with you? And she whimpers a little bit, and she says, no, they couldn't make it. They're all at the funeral. <laughs> first things first. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And if we get that right, all these other pieces fall into place like a jigsaw puzzle. We can live in a world with many gods. We can live in a world with worthy, if subordinate, allegiances. We can pledge allegiance to the flag and to the republic for which it stands, or to the miraculous euphoric Cubs, or to the Buckeyes, or to William Blair, or to the Helen of Troy we're married to. Because we will work like a dog for them, but we will never steal for them. We will die for them, but we will never lie for them. We will serve them, but we will never take innocent life for them because our souls are not for sale. We will never prostitute our integrity because we love God before everything else. Do you have any friends who are Jehovah's Witnesses? If you do, that you know that the, the witnesses are not really supposed to pledge allegiance to the flag. They're not even supposed to stand to sing the national anthems because these public displays of national loyalty are encroachments upon their loyalty to God, upon the first commandment, to have no other gods before God. Now, most Americans think the witnesses are a bit overscrupulous, but it's something to think about 
as we watch prominent American athletes protest a flawed republic in public ways. So in recent weeks, 18 NFL players have taken a knee during the national anthem. And now this mimicry is spreading to high schools and colleges. And so it raises the question, how do you express your loyalty to institutions which often don't live up to their own ideals? So D David Brooks wishes these athletes wouldn't do this. In his column in the Times on Friday, David Brooks says, the answer to what's wrong with America is America. Good point. I heard a touching story a while back. After Pearl Harbor and until the end of World War II, 120,000 Japanese Americans were confined in concentration camps throughout the American West. These were American citizens. These were Japanese Americans, like Dutch Americans, like Italian Americans, like Polish Americans. And they lost their houses and their property and their jobs, and sometimes their families were split up. It was insufferably hot during the summer and cold during the winter. It was pretty horrible. And the main camp among these concentration camps for Japanese Americans was at Manzanar in Eastern California, not far from the Nevada border. Manzanar had a bank and a hospital and an orphanage and a hog farm and a chicken ranch and baseball teams and a Boy Scout troop. And once during their long and unjust internment, these righteously aggrieved Japanese inmates decided to protest their imprisonment by tearing down the American flag that stood at the center of the camp. And the Japanese Boy Scouts, when they heard about this, made a protective ring around the flag as a last line of defense against the desecration of the American flag. I guess they decided that the answer to what's wrong with America is America. NFL players, Boy Scouts, personally, I respect both ways of getting a point across. One last story about the Pledge of Allegiance and then I'll quit. I don't know if you've ever come across the writings of this wonderfully spiritual writer called Barbara Grizzuti Harrison. She's been dead about 12 years now. She wrote these wonderful articles and books. She was, Barbara Harrison was raised in her childhood and youth as a Jehovah's Witnesses. When she became an, an adult, she converted back to the faith in which she was baptized Roman Catholicism, but for her youth, she was a Jehovah's Witnesses, and she attended public school in Brooklyn. And you can imagine how fraught her existence was as a Jehovah's Witness in a Brooklyn public school. A couple of times a week at her school, the entire student body would gather for assembly in the auditorium. And the uh, assembly would always begin with the Pledge of Allegiance. And this was a terrible time for a Jehovah's Witnesses, a witness who would stand out because she couldn't take the pledge. And as she was parading into the auditorium for assembly a couple times a week, during her sixth grade year, her teacher that year always managed to be standing next to her and would make his way to her chair and he would stand 
on her right, and he would place his own right hand over his heart, and with his left, he would clutch hers so that she would not have to stand out as a misfit and a rebel among her 12-year-old peers. Years later, when Miss Harrison grew up, she said, I have always loved him. How could I not have loved him, my beautiful teacher? So this guy sounds to me like a guy who tried to keep God first, to love God above all and his students as themselves. We get this right and we can live beautiful lives. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen.